Hello and welcome to Upstage the Podcast, your regular dose of the news and reviews. I'm Rachel. And I'm Abby. This week we are going to do the next in our series on musicals through the ages. This week we're talking about the 1940s. It's the start of the golden age of musical theatre, so there's lots of shows you'll know here. But first, theatre news. The first bit of news is that the West End production of Dreamgirls is closing. So the final show will be in January and then they're going to commence a UK tour. That's very nice, isn't it? Yeah. It's exciting because the Savoy normally gets quite cool things. Yeah, good kind of classic. Yeah. Good West End theatre. Classic, but then also when they do a new show, it's something good. Usually. <laughs> something decent. <laughs> yeah. But they've had like a lot of classic show revivals in yeah, the last few years. Yeah, especially recently. Um, and they also had Legally Blonde the Musical, which I went to see several times. Also exciting that Dreamgirls is doing a UK tour because I really enjoyed that show. I mean, yeah. Amber Riley was by far the highlight. But the production was really good and the choreography and stuff. Maybe I'll go see it again before it closes. Might be a good idea. Some more news is that Daniel Ratcliffe is coming back to Broadway following his stint in How to Succeed and in Equus. He is going to appear in The Lifespan of a Fact with Cherry Jones and Bobby Cannavale, which is a new play adapted from a 2012 book. And that's opening at Studio 54 on Broadway on September the 20th. The final piece of news is that it's the Tony Awards tonight, as you might be listening to this, on Sunday the 10th, so it might have already happened, but yeah, Josh Groban and Sarah Bareilles are hosting, very exciting, some good new shows this year, some good revivals, quite a good race in many categories. Yeah, there's no clear winner for a lot of things, I mean... Harry Potter and the Cursed Child will obviously win, Yeah, I feel like in the play categories. Interestingly, and maybe unusually, I feel like normally there's a frontrunner in musicals, this year there's kind of frontrunners in plays, and there's Harry Potter in New Play and Angel America in Revival yep. and I yep. feel like they're the big two front runners but I think it's a bit more open for musical yeah so yeah, it'll be Spongebob and Mean Girls and a uh, band visit band's the visit. band's visit in New Musical and then there's Carousel and Once on This Island and My, My Fair Lady. Lady in Revival so lots of good performances lots of good shows there will be some good performances on the Tony Awards broadcast I'm sure and I'm excited to see what Josh Groban and Sarah Burles do Moving on to the next in our series on musicals through history, we are talking about the 1940s this week. So this is the beginning of the sort of golden age of musicals. So we'd had sort of the revolutionary musicals of Showboat um, in the 1920s, and starting in the 1940s, there were some more really huge shows that still resonate today. So the first of these that we wanted to talk about this week is Rodgers and Hammerstein's Oklahoma. This was their first musical together, and it was an absolute sensation they'd both written musicals before they were both established writers but they were collaborating with different people um and this was the first musical they'd written together so what's quite interesting about the way that they work together is that hammerstein would always write the lyrics first and then he would send them to rogers to set to music and what sort of came out of that was a show that broke lots of like the sort of long established rules of musical theater at the time Another interesting thing is that Oklahoma wasn't originally called Oklahoma. It was originally called Away We Go. When it opened on Broadway in 1943, it was immediately a smash hit. It was full of a cast of sort of unknowns. There were no stars in it. There was a suggestion that Shirley Temple would be cast as the heroine. And Roger and Hammerstein sort of vetoed that and insisted that the people on stage weren't sort of glamorous in that way. Like everything was devoted to sort of enhancing the narrative rather than casting stars. 
So the musical of Oklahoma is set at the turn of the 20th century as Oklahoma is about to become a new state and the story centres around a love triangle and a rivalry between a ranch hand Curly and a farm hand Judd um, for the affections of a slightly more well-to-do woman Laurie. Oklahoma is quite groundbreaking in a number of ways, one of which is there was a sort of dream ballet dance sequence finale of the first act, which was kind of the first of its kind that became quite a a prominent element in musical theatre going forward. So there's a lot of weird dream sequences. The first I think of is like Fiddle on the Roof, when Mm. they had that really creepy, I used to like fast forward through that in the VHS (laughs) when I was a kid. But that sort of kind of sequence ballet number so like stuff that requires a choreographer rather than yeah. just people who can dance yeah and the choreographer for oklahoma was agnes DeMille, who was an incredibly famous choreographer throughout the golden age of broadway and there's um awards named after her these days for choreography so she's really um considered one of the leading choreographers and a really big name in the development of what we think of as kind of classic broadway dance today Another really cool thing about Oklahoma was that it was the first ever musical to be to have a cast recording with the whole original cast. So they sold 800,000 albums of the original cast recording of Oklahoma by the time it closed on Broadway, which is really cool. So the show then opened in the West End at Theatre Royal Drury Lane in May of 1947 and sold out for an impressive three and a half years, which is not at all bad. And then there was a film version in 1955, which also was incredibly successful. So, um, yeah, Oklahoma was definitely one of the biggest shows of its age. Another show that has really lived on in film is On the Town, which opened in 1944 on Broadway. So obviously the early 40s, or just generally the, the 1940s generally, were quite heavily defined by the Second World War. The story of On the Town, for people who don't know, follows three Navy soldiery people. I don't know soldier terms and, like, army terms, so I'm like, <laughs> Navy folk, boat boatmen. Boatmen. <laughs> and they're on Air leave. drivers. <laughs> yeah. They are on 24-hour shore leave in New York City. And, obviously, romance hijinks ensue. There's a lot of direct influences on On the Town from Oklahoma. For example, the Dream Ballet was kind of taken to the next level with On the Town, which had two ballet sequences. So again, kind of solidifying this dance aspect of um, Broadway mm-hmm. shows. So even though On the Town is a quite a, a fun show and quite lighthearted, it doesn't shy away from the sort of grim reality of war for example the song some other time is kind of the all the characters musing on just this kind of 24 hours being very separate from the lives they're having to normally lead it was also one of the first musicals to have a racially integrated cast so one of the main parts in the show was played in the original production by a japanese american dancer who's um bit of trivia for you whose father was actually held in a u.s internment camp in 1941 which is interesting so yeah there were six black people in a cast of 56 and they also had one of the first african-americans to conduct an orchestra in a broadway show so that's very cool very very cool and then in 1945 came Carousel, which is the next big Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, again with choreography um, from Agnes DeMille. So you can see these kind of real big powerhouses coming through in the 1940s. 
So the story of Carousel revolves around a carnival man called Billy Bigelow and a mill worker called Julie, and Julie falls in love with Billy at his carousel. They get married, Julie gets pregnant, and when he realises that he can't provide for his family, Billy participates in a robbery and some bad things happen after that. So the guy that they cast to play, Billy, was the singer John Ray, and the seven-minute-long soliloquy in Carousel was written especially for him by Roger Hammerstein because of how good he was at opera arias, basically. Obviously, one of the main things about Carousel is the melodies and lyrics. It's regarded as one of the greatest musicals of all time because of its score. So there's the classic You'll Never Walk Alone, which is a fantastic song. A great song, a lovely song. And I think that song also took on a special meaning for audiences at the end of World War Two. There's also If I Loved You, which is another beautiful song. Mm. On top of its songs, it was also noted for its dance sequences. Again, Agnes DeMille. There's a 15-minute dance sequence in Act Two, which is by the teenage daughter of Julian Billy. And it sort of encapsulates her small-town life as she's grown up. So it's kind of um, taking on dance as another medium of storytelling rather than just something they do to make things look pretty. So Carousel ran for 890 shows at the Majestic Theatre and then toured around America for two years. There have been lots and lots of revivals on Broadway, so in 1954, 57, 94, and there is a revival at the moment. Yeah, right now. Which may become a Tony Award-winning revival at the weekend. Who knows? With Joshua Henry, Joshua Lindsay, Henry, Lindsay Mendes, Lindsay Mendes, and Jesse Mueller. Yes, good cast. It's very, cast. very strong cast. So in the past couple of weeks, we've spoken quite a lot about Irving Berlin, and he returned to Broadway with Annie Get Your Gun in 1946, which is a sort of Wild West sort of musical. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this has some really well-known classic Irvin Berlin songs including There's No Business Like Show Business and Anything You Can Do which are definitely songs that have real prominence outside of the the show as well. The show itself may be slightly racially out of touch these days let's say but was definitely a big hit at the time running for over a thousand performances in its original run this was also the show that made Ethel Merman the sort of Broadway legend. So she'd been on Broadway before, she'd been away for two years, and she came back and played Annie for the entire run, the entire three-year run, and yeah, this sort of cemented her status as a star in her own right. She also reprised her role as Annie in the 1966 Broadway revival. So the next musical that we're going to talk about is Kiss Me Kate, which opened on Broadway in 1948, which is Cole Porter's first and only fully integrated musical. It won five Tony Awards, it won Best Musical, Best Author, Best Score, Best Costumes, and Best Producer. Kiss Me Kate is about a theatre troupe rehearsing for the Taming of the Shrew in a Baltimore theatre, and it's about the cast of this production of the Taming of the Shrew, and there's gangs involved, Baltimore gangs are involved, the gangs want money, and will this production of the Taming of the Shrew go ahead? Who knows? We don't know. I mean, we literally don't know, we've never seen the show. We literally don't know, we've never seen the show. But there are quite famous songs in Kiss Me Kate, such as Too Darn Hot, which is a great song. Very, very catchy. And this was sort of Cole Porter's comeback show, so he was quite jealous of the success of Irving Berlin with Annie Get Your Gun and of Rodgers and Hammerstein with Oklahoma, so he felt like he had to really up his game with this show. So he tried to give the show within a show that the Shakespearean scenes a sort of authentic Italian Renaissance feel, so he used a lot of Italian musical forms in his writing. And it was really a success from the very beginning. It's considered by 
a lot of people to be Cole Porter's best show, his masterpiece. It ran for two years in New York and it also moved to the West End where it ran for more than a year. It's obviously been revived so many times. And interestingly, every time the show has been produced, it's run for more performances than any production ever of The Taming of the Shrew. So the last musical that we're going to talk about, the last musical to sneak into the 1940s is South Pacific, which again is a Roger Hammerstein musical that is so well known and so produced in like community theatre and amateur productions. Imagine writing that, like that's their third massive show in one decade. I know, it's incredible. That is still like produced today. Mm-hmm. That is impressive. Isn't it impressive? So South Pacific is based on a series of short stories by an American author set during World War Two in the Southern Pacific. It's quite it was at the time quite contentious subject matter because it sort of very realistically portrayed discrimination and insubordination and death in battle, which initially doesn't seem like the kind of thing that would make a very nice Broadway musical. Obviously, Showboat had dealt with that kind of criticism 20 years earlier, but they went ahead with developing this musical anyway. This is one of the first musicals to really tackle those kind of controversial subjects for a mainstream audience. And it was really, really innovative in the way that it achieved that. So in almost every area, so composition and staging and production, it basically, it, the thread that weaves all those stories together is about a young female nurse who's stationed in the South Pacific. She falls in love with an older man um, and she sort of has some prejudices about, he has some mixed race children from a previous relationship and she's sort of forced to confront her prejudices. There's a secondary love story and there's quite a lot of comedy in the musical. And again, um, South Pacific has some real classics in terms of songs. So there's nothing like a dame, big, broad character number. And um, happy talk, happy talk. I had to sing so many times as a child when I was in like choir in school. Why? I don't know. We just I was we, the group song that we always had to sing was Happy Talk. I don't think we happy ever sang talking, that. Happy talking, happy talking, talk about things. But I know all the words. Wow okay there's also um the song some enchanted evening and also i've got to wash that man right out of my hair which is um, classic. a classic so some really a really really strong score score there um the show won 10 tony awards and also the 1950 award for pulitzer prize for drama so it did all right for itself so yeah, by the end of the 40s, Rodgers and Hammerstein were really cemented as stars of musical theatre alongside Irving Blinn and Cole Porter and elements of musical theatre like the Dream Ballet sequence that we've mentioned um, sort of started in their shows and became real staples of musical theatre and obviously their influence continued um, through the following decades. So we have not seen the last of them we yet. We definitely have not. We've that got so sure. much more Rodgers and Hammerstein to talk about. Yeah. We've not talked about perhaps their most famous musical yet. That's I- coming i would argue that that is indeed true very exciting um so yeah this is a lot going on and a, a lot, lot going on good in the stuff 40s. coming up lots of good stuff to come up in the golden the rest of the golden age ball bulletin i don't think he's doing anything i don't i think he's probably, probably having a rest after chess before he goes on tour with Il devo yeah um it's his birthday soon though so a little sneak preview we are going to be doing a michael ball episode the week of his birthday to celebrate the great man i'm sure we don't is. need to tell you when that is because everyone knows uh, of course all everybody day. knows it's june the it's, it's in june it is in june so look out for that towards the end of this month get excited um i can't wait just talk about michael ball for an hour it's gonna be brilliant yeah an hour i like you are going big oh we're going big. it will be our longest episode yeah yes an hour and a half even feature length yeah any any tv any podcast any books you've been 
listening, watching, reading? No, I knew you'd asked me that. And so I tried to think what I've been doing my week. And I'm worried I haven't been doing anything with my week. I have been watching Love Island. I genuinely, Monday when I was at work, I was like, the only thing that is getting me through this grey, bleak day of the week is the fact that Love Island is back tonight. And I'm just so happy about it. And I'm also, because I'm that extra watching the new series of Love Island and then when I can't watch a new episode I'm watching series one of Love Island on no, Netflix I've no. never seen it before so it's not like I'm re-watching it which makes it slightly better but Does it? just it's just taken over my life and I'm not mad about it I've also started listening to a new podcast literally just today called The Doorstep Murder which is a BBC Scotland production about a unsolved true crime case from 13 years ago they all have Scottish accents they do and it's oh, so relaxing I'm in it's great <laughs> I love um, you like this Harrowing tale of murder <laughs> is so relaxing. It is harrowing, just as like the nine 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 call that his wife nine makes. Nine nine nine, the emergency services call that his wife makes when she when he gets shot no. is oh. at the beginning, and it's emergency not, services calls. Oh. It's not nice. She, it's really harrowing, but it's a, it's a fascinating case. They are still, it's still an open case now, so she keeps saying like, if you know anything, email me. Fiona.walker at bbc.co.uk So I'm hoping that when we get to the end that there'll be a solution, but that's a pipe dream, isn't it? So listen to the first two episodes of that. I also, I've already mentioned this podcast before, but it's just so good that I have to say again, Caliphate, which is the New York Times podcast with Rukmini Kalamachi, is so good. She's so smart and it's so well-researched and I wasn't expecting it to go the way it's gone. Like, there's several episodes where she interviews a former ISIS fighter who's gone back to Canada and then it's sort of like they realise that he's been lying to them about a lot of stuff or they suspect that he has and so it becomes an investigation sort of for one episode about why he would lie whether he was ever with ISIS at all and then that's sort of resolved and now she is it's from the Battle of Mosul last year when um, the Iraqi forces took back Mosul and she's in Iraq at the time and it's fascinating it's so interesting I think that's it for this week yeah Next week, we're going to take a short break from the series to talk about Father's Day, to talk about our favourite fathers musical in musical, fathers. musical fathers. And we'll be back with this series probably later in June. Thank you for listening, as always. Hope you're enjoying this series. Let us know if you are. Let us know if you're not. Maybe we'll stop doing it if everybody hates it. But we're it's enjoying like we it. We don't care. We're enjoying it. And that's what counts, because this is our podcast. Yeah. And we say what we want. See you all next week. Yep. Bye. Bye.